Hello, my name is Georg Nolte. I teach international law at Humboldt University Berlin. At the same time, I'm a member of the International Law Commission of the United Nations. The Commission is a body of 34 experts who are elected by the General Assembly for a period of five years. The mandate of the Commission is to make recommendations to the General Assembly regarding the progressive development and the codification of international law. Today, I want to describe some elements of the work of the International Law Commission from the perspective of community interests. Community interests is a term which can have different meanings. Here, I want to use the term as the opposite of self-interest. The history of international law has often been described as moving from self-interest to community interest. By this, authors want to say that international law in previous times mainly served the self-interest of states in their bilateral relations, whereas there has been a market development during the past 100 years or so to recognize and safeguard community interests of states and other actors particularly after the establishment of the United Nations. This perspective of the history of international law has been succinctly described by the phrase from bilateralism to community interest. However, international law has always addressed and protected community interests. Even in the 19th century, at the height of the so-called Westphalian system, the rules against pirates and those against slavery have formed part of international law. Also, community interests have never been only those for humanity as a whole. The modern development towards international organization started in the 19th century with river regimes between smaller groups of states and other forms of the management of technical matters such as postal and telegraphic communication. Community interests, therefore, cannot simply be opposed to an interstate system or even to bilateral treaties between self-interested states which make a deal bilateralism. After all, bilateral treaties often protect a community interest, such as the sustainable use of a common resource. Even bilateral investment treaties are supposed to protect the community interest of generating investment and thus the economic and social development of both states' parties and their nationals. But it is also true, if, however, the term community interest is conceived in such a broad way, it risks losing analytical force. The concept community interest, therefore, needs to be distinguished from self-interest. Standing alone, however, self-interest is similarly overbroad. The protection against pirates on the high seas or the protection against dangerous effects of climate change lies in the self-interest of every single state as well as in the self-interest of all individual human beings. In that sense, self-interest largely overlaps with community interest. Thus, for us today 
self-interest should be understood as referring to the legal space for actors to choose their own interests and how to pursue those interests regardless of others. And conversely, community interests are goods that require any one state or other actor to take the situation of other actors into account when exercising rights with respect to this good. This definition does not exclude the possibility that international rules protect both self-interest and community interests. The principle of permanent sovereignty over natural resources, for example, may be understood as expressing a stronger self-interest orientation or a stronger community interest orientation, depending on how it is interpreted. If permanent sovereignty over natural resources is interpreted as merely distributing the natural resources of the earth among the different states according to their territorial jurisdiction, it primarily defines and secures the self-interest of states. If, on the other hand, the same principle is understood as implying a responsibility of each state to manage the exploitation of their resources responsibly and sustainably, and thus in the interests of their own population and in the interests of humanity, then the principle of permanent sovereignty over natural resources becomes primarily one of protecting community interests. In this sense, international law has always dealt with the relationship between community interests and self-interest. This relationship may change over time. Domestic law has, for example, sometimes placed more emphasis on the freedom of individuals to make contracts and sometimes more on the protection of people against unfair terms of contract, for example, to protect consumers. Accordingly, the development of international law since the 19th century has been described as moving from greater protection of sovereign self-interest towards greater protection of community interests. Here and today I want to specifically look at the ways in which community interests are recognized and implemented in international law. In this lecture I want to look at a few specific areas of international law from the perspective of the work of the International Law Commission. In the following I will look at certain primary rules of international law as they have been formulated by the Commission and as at their relevance for the recognition of community interests in international law. I will not address all such primary rules and also not so-called secondary rules, although they are also relevant for the topic of this lecture. I will conclude with, with some reflections on whether the picture which emerges supports a progress story of from self-interest to community interest or whether we are seeing rather signs of continuity. Since its establishment 70 years ago in 1949, the International Law Commission has recognized community interests and corresponding primary community obligations, as opposed to defining the scope of acceptable exercise of self-interest. 
one of the first outcomes of its work, the Nuremberg Principles on International Criminal Responsibility, is a good example of the recognition of duties which states and individual human beings must respect in fulfillment of a fundamental community interest. Probably due to the unfavorable Cold War context, the Commission initially concentrated on politically less ambitious projects. The codification of the law of the sea in the 1950s, although it was clearly a community interest-oriented topic, was characterized primarily by the goal of clarifying and distributing the areas within which states could pursue their self-interest and of delineating them from established common space and the regime of the high seas. It should be noted, however, that the four conventions on the law of the sea of 1958 did contain some new duties of cooperation which secure community interests. The Vienna Conventions on Diplomatic and Consular Relations of 1961 and 1963 which the Commission had prepared, were also mostly codifications of rather classical rules of international law. Although their rules are characterized by bilateral forms of reciprocities, they nevertheless reflect a profound community interest. This was later confirmed by the International Court of Justice in the Tehran hostages case which spoke of the erga omnis dimension of certain obligations of the conventions. It was only towards the end of the Cold War that the Commission started to more successfully pursue projects on primary rules that more clearly contained other regarding duties, thus community interest. This was particularly true for the topics of non-navigational uses of international watercourses, transboundary aquifers, and prevention of transboundary harm for hazardous activities. The draft articles by the Commission on all three topics are full of obligations of states to cooperate as well as to conduct assessments of possible harm to other states and to the environment. Whereas it is possible to understand such rules as delimiting competences for the pursuit of self-interest, they force the interpreter and the actor to specifically justify the pursuit of self-interest in terms of community interest. The resulting Convention on Non-Navigational Uses of International Watercourses contains, in its Articles 5 to 9 and 12, the principle of equitable and reasonable utilization, the obligation not to cause significant harm, and duties to cooperate, including the duty to notify of planned measures with possible adverse effects. The latter obligation provides for a minimal deliberative obligation in regard of the other in a wider community. Articles 20 to 28 of the same convention spell out duties of states, parties to cooperate in furtherance of the common interest of environmental protection. Thus, 
the Convention on Non-Navigational Uses of International Watercourses of 1979-1997 is a move in international law from the relatively free pursuit of self-interest, subject to the no-harm principle, to more bounded duties to pursue self-interest within a framework of other regarding duties of cooperation. The Convention later became the blueprint for the draft articles on transboundary aquifers, which adopted most of the pertinent duties from the Convention. On a more general level, the International Law Commission has articulated basic concepts and other regarding community obligations in its draft principles on the prevention of transboundary harm for hazardous activities of 2006. This has led some authors to ask whether these principles embody a, a duty of states to take into account what would be considered relevant to most, if not all, decisions that affect foreign st stakeholders. The International Law Commission has not, however, given a positive answer to this question. This becomes clear when looking at the Commission's recent work regarding the topics expulsion of aliens, protection of the atmosphere, and protection of persons in the event of disasters. The work on these three topics should probably be described as ambiguous with, res with regard to the recognition of community obligations. Expulsion of aliens is a classical topic of international law. Today, some see it as requiring an approach which goes beyond the traditional framework in which the interest of one state to expel a non-national is balanced against the human rights of the person concerned and the interest of other states, particularly that of the home state of the person. In a time of mass migration, community interest considerations of migration flows could, in one way or another, be integrated in the existing legal framework at least by way of a progressive development of international law. It is clear, however, that the Articles on Expulsion of Aliens, as they were adopted by the Commission in 2014, are mostly confined to articulating well-established rules with only occasional elements of progressive development. This is due to a strong renewed emphasis by most states, as well as by most members of the Commission, on the need to articulate the elementary rules, as well as their knowledge that a more ambitious and other regarding approach would not have been acceptable to many states. When it comes to less traditional topics, the first question is the way in which a certain community interest is described. This first step is often uncontroversial since general formulations usually do not commit states to respect specific obligations. A recent example in the work of the International Law Commission, however, demonstrates that even the description of the general character of a collective interest may be difficult to achieve. In 2013, the Commission decided, after much debate, to put the topic protection of the atmosphere on its agenda. In 2015, 
the special rapporteur proposed a draft conclusion by which he wanted to describe the collective interest that is at stake in the topic protection of the atmosphere. In his report, he discussed the possibilities that the atmosphere could either be declared to be a common heritage of mankind or a common concern of humankind. After concluding that the concept of common heritage of mankind had failed to gain traction beyond the quite limited success within the convention regime of the deep seabed, he proposed that the Commission adopt the formulation that was used in the preambles of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and in the Convention on Biological Diversity, both of 1992. His draft guideline number three read, and I quote, the atmosphere is a natural resource essential for sustaining life on Earth, human health and welfare, and aquatic and terrestrial ecosystems, and hence the degradation of atmospheric condition is a common concern of humankind. End of quote. This formulation, however, while sounding rather obvious and well established, gave rise to a controversial debate within the Commission. In this debate, the argument prevailed that the, common, that the concept of common concern of humankind had not been sufficiently confirmed in treaty practice since 1992 in relation to the atmosphere, and that states had expressed concern because, quote, the concept was vague and controversial and that its content was not only difficult to define, but also subject to various interpretations. End of quotation. Thus, the Commission could ultimately only agree on moving the description of the community interest from the operative part to the preamble and to use the following formulation. And I quote in the preamble, Recognizing, therefore, that the protection of the atmosphere from atmospheric pollution and atmospheric degradation is a pressing concern of the international community as a whole, End of quote. Now, one might think that the expression pressing concern of the international community as a whole puts a similarly strong emphasis on the atmosphere as a community interest than the term common concern of humankind. However, the background of this expression shows otherwise. The concept pressing concern of, international, of the international community as a whole is only the criterion which the Commission uses to select its own topics. It was rather the possible resonance of the inspiring concepts of common heritage of mankind and common concern of humankind that triggered the resistance of some members of the Commission. Being a body which usually decides by way of consensus it was not possible to agree on a more emphatic and clearer articulation of the collective interest of the protection of the atmosphere. This experience within the International Law Commission demonstrates the difficulties which may prevail in international organizations 
when it comes to the articulation of community interests. An expert body should indeed not try to compensate for the lack of progress at the political level. In this case, however, it seems that the Commission underestimated the acceptability of the term common concern of humankind among states with regard to the topic protection of the atmosphere. This is because the expression common concern of humankind was used a few months later, a few months after the Commission adopted its preamble, so that the expression of common concern of humankind was used in the Paris Agreement on Climate Change of 2015, by which all states described the, mo the community interest at stake. This incident shows that the Commission is not necessarily ahead of states and does not necessarily lead the way towards the recognition of more community interests and obligations. The most recent topic of the International Law Commission which raised issues of community interests is protection of persons in the event of disasters. This topic possesses both classical and non-traditional features. It is classical insofar as it deals with the role of a state which is affected by a disaster, an affected state, in providing for the persons in its territory or under its control. But the topic is also non-traditional insofar as it frames the collective effort to protect persons in the event of a disaster. The topic thus deals with the adaptation of general rules of international law to an extreme situation. In 2016, the International Law Commission adopted the draft articles on the protection of persons in the event of disasters on second reading. Overall, the draft articles can be described as a mildly progressive articulation of community obligations. At the same time, however, they also contain an important reaffirmation of the principle of sovereignty of states and of the freedom of states to deal with a disaster situation as they see fit. On the one hand, there are the provisions which limit the freedom of the affected state in the community interest. The affected state has a duty to cooperate in the event of a disaster and even a duty to seek external assistance if the disaster, quote, manifestly exceeds its response capacity. That is Article, article 11. Once an affected state has given its consent to external assistance, such consent, and I quote again, shall not be withdrawn arbitrarily. End of quote. That is Article 13. Interestingly, Many duties which arise in the case of a disaster are declared not to be limited to states but also extend to other assisting actors, including non-governmental organizations. The Commission has thus formulated a set of draft articles which contain certain innovative community interest obligations in a situation which calls for the fulfillment of classical state functions, in particular the protection of persons. At the same time, however, the Commission has deliberately refrained from invoking the term 
responsibility to protect and has, in the preamble of the articles, used the formulation, and I quote, stressing the principle of sovereignty of states and consequently reaffirming the primary role of the state affected by a disaster in providing disaster relief assistance, end of quote. This formulation is re-emphasized in draft article 10, paragraph 2, which reads, and I quote again, the affected state has the primary role in the direction, control and coordination and supervision of such relief assistance. One of the most important aspects of the work on this topic is the way in which the Commission has conceived the role and the responsibility of the affected state. On first reading in 2014, the Commission adopted a formulation which gave prominence to an understanding of sovereignty which emphasizes a community interest orientation. That was Article 12, and I quote, The affected state, by virtue of its sovereignty, has the duty to ensure the protection of persons and provision of disaster relief and assistance on its territory. End of quotation. This understanding of sovereignty as a duty, not only as a right, goes back much further than the debate regarding the responsibility to protect, and it has roots in an arbitral award of 1928 in the Island of Palmas case. On second reading in 2016, however, the Commission dropped the reference to sovereignty as a duty in favor of the following, and I quote the new article and the final article 10. The affected, states has the, the affected state has the duty to ensure the protection of persons and provision of disaster relief assistance in its territory or in territory under its jurisdiction or control. The reason for dropping the formulation by virtue of its sovereignty has the duty was not, however, because of any doubt among the members of the Commission regarding the legal foundation of the proposed rule. It was rather due to the extension of the duty beyond the state's own territory to any territory under its jurisdiction or control. This extension required, it was argued, that the reference to sovereignty be dropped. It could not, it was argued, be its sovereignty which ob obliges an occupying state to ensure the protection of persons in the occupied land. So rather than saying by virtue of its sovereignty, territorial jurisdiction or control, the Commission decided, for reasons of drafting, to merely refer to the duty itself. This reasoning is confirmed in the commentary. Looking back at the way in which the Commission has dealt with the primary rules of international law, which I have addressed, it becomes clear that the Commission, while keeping the recognition and development of community obligations and community interests in mind, is doing so in a way which reassures states that the traditional interstate paradigm of international law 
remains untouched. The picture which emerges from the work of the International Law Commission is that of an institution which has accompanied the development of international law in a way which only partially fits the story of from self-interest to community interest. We can see the development of primary rules which articulate community interests, but the Commission has done so in a way which maintains the classical interstate framework. The larger significance of the classical approach of the Commission ultimately lies in the eyes of the beholder. Much depends on whether one thinks that the Commission is wise in drawing a line between the traditional vision of international law with states as primary actors and an alternative vision of a multitude of relevant affected actors. It may be possible to justify the classical approach of the Commission in the following way. The more the determination of a community interest is contested, the more important state-driven consent becomes as a legitimating factor. Expert bodies or non-governmental organizations may be able to successfully promote a community interest, but their competence ultimately does not go further than that of a stimulant. Even in areas where the existence of certain community interest is uncontested, as for example in international humanitarian law, but where states hesitate to commit themselves to specific standards, it may be short-sighted to try to compensate for the lack of political will of states by other means. This concludes my lecture and I thank you very much for your attention.